Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Edge Podcast. I am your host, Leslie Vickery, CEO and founder of Clear Edge Marketing. For those of you new to The Edge, we feature executive women in the recruitment industry in an effort to shine the light on the wonderful women leading our industry forward and for up-and-comers. If they can see it, women in executive roles, and understand the day in the life of the C-suite, they can certainly envision and be it. With today's podcast, I am excited to welcome our second guest to a new series that features male allies. We know in order to see change on the diversity front, it will take everyone working together, and we need everyone in positions of power to support us. So at its most basic level, allyship is about having someone's back, and the guests we'll have on the podcast are prime examples of this. Allies embrace their responsibilities with humility and a learning stance. I talk about a learning stance a lot because it is not something that is claimed. It is a process, and self-awareness is the single most important component of becoming an ally. Being an ally requires recognizing the advantages opportunities, resources, and powers you've automatically been accorded. And real allyship requires substance behind action. And today's guest is all about action for our second allyship episode. It brings me great pleasure to welcome my good friend and industry expert, Eric Gregg, who is the CEO and founder at Clearly Rated. Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much, Leslie. I am truly honored to be uh, a part of this podcast. And as you know, I'm a, a huge proponent and supporter of all the work that you do. And and this particular topic is one that you and I spend a lot of time talking about. It's a passion uh, for both of us. Yes, we do. And I'm excited to have you here today and continue our story on the topic of allyship, Eric. But before we get started with that, I am sure most listeners have heard of Clearly Rated, but just in case they haven't, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the company and really why you started the business? Yeah, so Clearly Rated is the leading provider of client and talent and employee experience surveys for the staffing and recruiting industry. Um, we work with somewhere north of 350 different staffing and recruiting firms, um, mostly in North America, but some even globally. And uh, the business is probably best known in the staffing space for our best of staffing programs, which was really an opportunity that we started in actually 2009, the last recession, sort of coming out of that last recession, to shine the light on firms that were doing the right things around client experience and around the experience of the talent that they're placing into assignments. In 2020, we actually launched that same program for internal employees that has a significant focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm sure we'll talk some more about how that became a core component of that program for us. But that was really our focus is we wanted to um, you know, do something that allow us to get engagement survey results, but also to really determine the differences between males and females, between uh, people based on their ages or based on their race or ethnicity or how they identify. Um, and we'll be talking a lot about that data today. That's, I should mention, in is supported by Indeed and Talent.com are our two sponsors on that program as well. So a uh, shout out for them for continuing to to support that program, which is is really the source of a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion data that we have. 
Well, I can't wait to dig into a little bit of the data and some aha moments that you've had. And quite frankly, you and I have shared on a couple of webinar conversations and just one-on-one talks about where we can make change. But what I'd love to kind of circle back on a little bit first, Eric, is again, people knowing Clearly Rated, and of course, I know you well, but I'd love for you to share with us your career journey ultimately. So what led you to starting Clearly Rated and how did you get started in in your career? Yeah, I wish that I had, you know, Simon Sinek has as the sort of the why, right? And I feel like as a founder, you're looked to have this really, you know, impassioned reason why you started this. You know, this was a problem that I saw and it affected my grandmother. So I started this company so that nobody else would have to go through that. But the reality is for me, I've always cared a lot about sort of experience data. And so that's really, as we built the company, that was really the starting point was just this interest and aptitude to analyze data and sort of make sense of it translated into something that that leadership teams that maybe weren't as analytical could really take action on. And that was really kind of how uh, we got our start. And we you know had the opportunity to look to some people very early on. The American Staffing Association was a great partner early on. Career Builder was a great partner. And Bill Stoller at Express was uh, a person who, you know, our very first client and very much shepherded us into the staffing space. And we saw an opportunity there to really, you know, take these experiences that happen with a velocity that they don't in some other professional service industries and really kind of shine the light on the people that are doing well and hopefully give them guidance as to where they've got accounts at risk, where they've got talent at risk uh, and opportunities to improve as well. It's a great story, Eric. And when I think about the impact that you've had on the industry, it's kind of like making a stamp on something where people look at it and know if you have the seal, so to speak, and have the best of staffing and all of the recognition that you get that um, those companies are doing something right. And it's great to give them that recognition. And it's also helpful to understand where they can you know, improve and make changes and, and measure and look at that. So it really shows that they care and make a difference, especially for our space. So Eric, jumping back to the allyship piece, I defined how I think of allyship earlier. Tell us a little bit about, in your own words, how do you define allyship and when did you know you were an ally? Uh, Let me start with the second part of that first, which is that I started to view myself as an ally when you asked me to be on this podcast. And I think that one of the things that I'll sort of say on this, that I don't think you ever sort of arrive at allyship. I think you're probably constantly trying to continue to improve at how you support people that haven't been afforded the same opportunities that you have been. And so I liked the aspect where you were talking about the self-awareness piece. And to me, I would say that my path towards allyship has really been around that self-awareness and and sort of trying to um, create opportunities as a part of that. But to me, that is allyship is not this sort of virtue signaling, you know, on National Women's Day. It's not changing the background of of your LinkedIn. It's actually putting things in place that hopefully people can point to and say, hey, I had this opportunity that I might not have gotten somewhere else because somebody looked and saw that they saw something in me that maybe other people hadn't seen in me. And I think that that's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it, honestly, Leslie, we talk a lot about this is just removing as many of the roadblocks that just sit there in there, just a willingness to say, hey, if I find something that is not 
equitable in terms of how it's impacting people. I'm going to work to remove that and shine the light on that. And I think that that that's it's just a commitment to that that really makes a difference. Thank you for sharing that, Eric. And I was reflecting and preparing for this podcast with you today and really thinking back a couple of years ago to when you and I and Delibra, Leslie and Rob and me and a couple of others were working on sharing the data and really sharing our stories. And I remember one of our prep calls for that being really vulnerable with you and sharing some of the stories that now are somewhat you know, public in the Together We Rise but it took those conversations with you and really being open and feeling honest and watching your reaction and realizing like even the surprise when we share some of the stories of what um, women have gone through, where it's that learning stance that we talked about and, and really realizing like, wow, I really do need to step up, use my voice and make a difference. I want to share a quote with you real quickly. So as I was prepping for this, I had reached out to Delibra, who you and I have worked with. Actually, I really credit you to introducing me to Delibra. She's the CEO of National Recruiting Consultants. And here's what she had to say about you as an ally. Working with Eric over the recent years and reviewing the surveys his team delivers to our industry around DE&I has been a game changer for me. I often say the first survey he delivered to the industry made me come alive in a way. The information validated what my gut told me for years. I am his biggest fan. He is an amazing ally and our industry would be in the dark without him. Chokes me up a little bit, actually. That I is... know, it kind of chokes me up too. Yeah, you know, I don't think that I or Clearly Rated uh, probably deserve all of that, but it sure feels nice. And I think that that's one of the things that really we've woken up to through the pandemic. And, and it, it's just the deeper you go, once you open yourself to sort of seeing that other people deal with things that you don't because of the privilege that you've been afforded, you just can't really turn back, right? Is you don't go prof- halfway down the rabbit hole and then decide to shut down to it. When you talk about that prep call as a part of that, like that was mortifying to me. And so probably the reaction that you saw was like mortified shame that somebody would sort of you know, put you in that position. I don't know if you remember this. We've not talked about this, Leslie, but there was a time at a conference when that I distinctly remember as well, where it was, you know, we were hanging out a bunch of people in the bar and you went to use the restroom and you asked me, you said, hey, can you watch this wine, this glass of wine, just so that nobody messes with it? It just sort of stood out to me at that time as one of those light bulb moments again, where it's like, oh, that's something I don't have to worry about. Right. And that's something that, that you do. Well, thank you. There's something to be said about being an ally where we as women feel comfortable coming to you and having these conversations and asking you for things like watching the drink or, you know, having to look at, well, who's going to the dinners? Am I going to be comfortable? And sadly, am I going to be safe? And it is something that we shouldn't have to think about or worry about, but that's the intention of these conversations here today is drawing that awareness. You didn't realize it. And I bet a bunch of people listening to this podcast, maybe it's the first time they're hearing it too. And our hope is that the more we can share these stories, the more we can, I guess, improve it and make it a more safe and welcoming environment for everyone and and be there and raise awareness to support one another. 
When I think of you, Eric, so you gave an example of where, you know, you were an ally and in that moment, you probably didn't even realize that's what was happening. But do you have any other stories or examples of where perhaps you did have to step in and say something if you saw something or where even later you saw something and said, oh my gosh, again, that learning stance of what can I do better next time to be there and to be an ally? Yeah, I had a situation, yes, this is years ago now, where there was, you know, one of our partners was being inappropriate with one of our female sales team and ended up, you know, sort of taking that person aside and saying, look, I know we work together and have worked together and you spend a lot of money with us, but you, I just need to be crystal clear with this. If that ever happens again, that will be the end of our professional relationship. And to their credit, they heard it. It never happened again uh, as a part of that. But that's probably the most profound one. Um, I can think through numerous times when I've been, you know, sort of, hey, can you sit here? Like, I need a little space from this person or where, you know, somebody will call me into a conversation that is awkward that I'm not a part of. And it mainly just to sort of buffer that conversation. But I'll be honest, Leslie, like at my core, you know, we pointed out a couple places that I'm proud of how I reacted. I could point to a dozen that are on the margins that I didn't step in. And the story, and I hope you're okay with me telling this because I, I love it so much, but that someone was asking you, you know, what are you going to do with the business and stuff like that? I believe Rob and me did say something in the moment on time to sort of call out that person as to sort of the inappropriateness of that, right? Well, that storyline, sadly, was um, at a conference again, where there was a pool party after a welcome reception. And I was in a group of executives, and there happened to be a male CEO who looked at me in that moment and said, um, hey, Leslie, will I see you in your bikini at the pool party? And the example, Eric, it's like in that moment, I didn't know how to use my own voice. I was just shocked. And that time I was a new CEO. I was struggling with my own confidence and imposter syndrome. And they, you know, took me from feeling like really great about myself in that moment to not, and I just didn't use my voice. And Robin, um, however, did, and she jumped in right away and had my back. And like you, probably where you're going with this is, um, for me, it was a moment of, I need to find and use my voice, not only for myself, but for others. And it's like a a no tolerance situation. And it's it takes practice, right? I mean, you don't always know exactly what to say. And I always say to it, if it's not in that moment, it's okay to sometimes go back to it too. And just say, you know, you probably didn't mean to make me feel this way. But when you said this, this is how it made me feel. And it's an opportunity for a learning moment for everyone, you know, for me to use my voice and to teach someone like, in a very polite way, maybe you, you know, just to think of saying it, maybe not saying it at all in that case, but how it may make you feel. It's such a creepy thing. Like, how does that not trigger somebody to be like, hey, you know what? That's going to sound creepy. Maybe I won't say that. Like, that's just, I know it happens all the time. I've heard other stories of it, unfortunately. You know, you talk about finding your voice in that moment, but I don't know. Sometimes they catch you so off guard that it's like you've been punched in the stomach, right? And it's like you're trying to find your voice, but you can't even get your own air because sort of reeling from 
like trying to process, like, did this person say this? What was their intent? Like, there's so much going on in that moment. And, and that's why I think it's so impactful that Robin was able to voice in that moment what it was. And, and you and I talked about this the other day. One of the things that I've really, well, two things. First of all, I think that there's a com, you know, an aspect of this between being a supportive male and being an ally. Uh, you know, a supportive male is sort of akin to not being a racist. An ally is akin to being anti-racist. And I think that that's an important distinction because I certainly have not, I've always not been a racist, but I've only recently tried to step further into that and truly be anti-racist. And I think the same comes around the allyship. There's a difference between being a person that would never say something like that and that would sort of ridicule someone for saying something like that and being a person that in the moment is the person that has the voice when the other person doesn't. And I think that's the other important thing there is I think for any of us that really want to be, you know, what I think the hero in your story is, right? They Robin Me is the hero of that story. And if you want to be Robin Me, I think we have to decide today that if that happens in the future and we see something like that, that we are going to say something and and ideally in the moment, but if not in the moment, then soon thereafter, because if you're trying to decide whether you should say something in that moment, it goes by too fast. Right. Yeah. And to your point, it's like knowing exactly, you know, what to say, how to say it. And it can be such an uncomfortable situation, but that's where making that pact to ourselves, if we see it happen to someone else, and they don't have a voice in that moment that we can be their voices on their behalf too, just in those see it, say it moments. And thank you to, for being vulnerable to say, you know, you haven't always necessarily been, I mean, I think you're perfect in those situations and not always saying something. And I mean, that's true for all of us. I think every person's probably been in a situation where it was uncomfortable and they could have said something and walked away wishing that they did. And the point of these conversations is to say, you know, now is your opportunity to to make that to make that change. Eric, you're so passionate about this topic and you know, just continuing to learn yourself and use your voice, but also the lens of your company to be able to make a real shift and change in our industry and other industries, quite frankly. So I'd love to hear what's the backstory for you with your passion around DEI, because really you were one of the first people to come forward and offer up, you know, leveraging your company and the power position you have to actually focus on data and rooting us in data to see the facts and why we need to make change. But there's got to be something inside of you that is kind of driving that for you. And, and I'd love to maybe hear that backstory. I'll give you the short version of the sort of the platform for it. And then I'll talk a little bit more specifically about why DE&I has become a major component of the best of staffing programs. But the back story history of this, I grew up in a really small town in Montana, where candidly, there's quite a bit of racism, quite a bit of prejudice, some amazing people as well. But you sort of almost get comfortable around people saying things that would make me blush today, right? And so I sort of grew up with that, not within my family, but within the community. And we live very close to a reservation, the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. And I had ended up being in a camp and making friends with some people in the towns nearby and starting to see sort of through that lens, how differently they were treated. And then seeing sort of the 
impact. Uh, one of my good friends was a, an exchange student, Macario Romero, um, who came into town and stayed with uh, the guy that I worked with and his family. And this is a, like the most likable guy you've ever been around. And I actually remember talking to some of the people in the town that are like, oh, I can't believe that, you know, the Brookers are having this Mexican guy come and stay with it. And he just didn't phase him. And I was sort of taken back at the time because it just didn't match with sort of what I knew about him. And he just sort of slowly turn. I mean, that guy in my little hometown of 1300, he probably single-handedly changed the arc of prejudice for three dozen people, right? Just through his interactions and his positivity and his unwillingness to sort of allow them to impact that. And so I've always kind of felt this confusion around people being treated, you know, very differently. I have very strong female role models. I had uh, very strong role models that treated the women in their lives with the absolute utmost respect. And so I've always kind of been grounded in that. And we built the company to always be, you know, to try. Uh, I think we've learned a lot of things that we were maybe doing unknowingly that that were against us, but we've always tried to be very equitable and I think empathetic to how different experiences affect different people. When you look at the best staffing piece of it, Leslie, it really was George Floyd's murder that sort of had us starting to have this conversation. We were already on this path around diversity, equity, and inclusion internally and making some progress. But one of our employees, I remember, she wrote like a 18-page email, it felt like. And one of the things that she said in that email was like, are we really doing enough? Like, I know we're doing things here, but we have this huge megaphone to the industry where people look to us, literally look to us to say which firms are doing the best job. And we could be really influencing that. And that was a really a light bulb moment for me as to this idea that, oh, our impact can be more than just living the way that we think it should be everywhere inside our walls. And that's when we decided to really lean into the diversity, equity, and inclusion impact. And you'll see actually even more from us in that regard over this next year. I can't wait to see it. And Thank you again for being, you know, one of the first really to come forward with data to point out some of the inequities in our own space and to start to track that. And not only did you that, you are benchmarking it, you also obviously through your relationships with various associations and so forth, continue to use your kind of megaphone, so to speak, in the industry to get the word out and to make change. This was not a one and done situation. And I know you and I have talked a lot about this, you know, with years now going by since George Floyd's murder, how can we keep the conversation going across the board and not let it fade out over time until something else tragic happens to kind of keep it, keep it going and to make change? I know you and I have talked about the data quite a bit. We've had a few conversations on this topic. What were some of the aha moments for you as you looked over the data? What really stood out to you the most? There's a couple of things, Leslie, that kind of stand out in the data to me. The first of which is that when we look at this through the lens of for staffing firms around diversity, equity, inclusion, I feel like we talk a lot about sort of women in leadership roles. And I think we talk a lot about, you know, the diversity of race and ethnicity. And so the first data points that really stood out to me is that the challenges that the industry has on those two topics are very different. When you look at how many women are in our industry, we actually is 47% of the overall U.S. workforce. It's like over 60% 
of our industry, internal employees are women. But and so if they had the same opportunities as their male counterparts, then we would expect that 60 percent of staffing firms are run by women. And that number drops all the way down to 32 percent in the executive level or higher. And so, you know, we don't have a representation problem. We have an advancement and an opportunity problem uh, when it comes to women. When it comes to um, those that identify as Black or Hispanic, it's both. You know, we have a roughly half of what the U.S. workforce is when it comes to those that identify as Black or Hispanic. And if you run that out, we have, uh, in, in our data suggests, less than 5% of executives identify as Black or Hispanic. And so it's really kind of two, right? You have a, a recruiting and a retention and a, and a promotion opportunity as you look at that. So that was one thing that really stood out to us. The other thing I think that has been a lasting impact for me is just the differences in experiences. So when we think about diversity, I think too often we think about diversity in terms of things that we can see. Like if I see a picture of your team, how, what you know, how many look like they're identifying as female? How many look like they might not be white? But the reality is, is that that's you know certainly one part of the equation. But what we really want to get at is you know if I ask five people at your company, two women and three men about their experience, is it going to be fundamentally different, right? If I ask um, three Black or Hispanic employees at your staffing firm about their experience and I ask three white employees about their experience, is it going to be fundamentally different? And that's where the storylines, I think, really get to be important. And especially when you look at females of color who are about three times as likely to be detractors of their firm as a white male is uh, in the same role, even when you control for sort of where they're at in the company and their level, um, all of that kind of holds true. And so we have to go deeper. And I think oftentimes we make a mistake where we get feedback on our diversity and equity inclusion and program from our uh, employees, when what we really want to actually understand as much as that or more is actually, is there equity in the overall experience and the overall engagement as a part of that. Um, And that's where I think it gets really interesting to make sure that people are feeling like they're belonging. So when you think about that, obviously um, having detractors and there's direct business implications to the results that you're sharing, why when you're talking to executives and you're saying, you know, you should really track this data, you should really add this internal survey to what you're doing, what are some of the things that you're seeing trend-wise, perhaps, with companies who are tracking it and making changes within their companies? And why should executives take notice? I think that you know, there's been so much published uh, around sort of how much better diverse teams operate and sort of tying that to their financial performance and the results. And I think the same holds true in the staffing industry. There's no reason to think that it wouldn't. In addition to that, if you're internal staff, we actually have a pretty strong story for diversity and the representation that we create with the people that we place. We actually do a, a pretty good job uh, when it comes to placing minorities, placing people that maybe have a dis- disability and things like that. The industry actually has, I think, a positive story to tell on that, but it's a little bit hollow if you're not able to sort of show internally that you're committed to that same piece of it. We're starting to see now very commonly people asking 
for that type of information as part of proposals or as a part of the sales process. Um, and so I think it's an important piece there. What's fascinating is when you look at the importance of being part of a diverse team and being part of a team that really focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, Gen Y and younger, like that generation is absolutely ready to carry the torch in terms of continuing to build really sustainable change they're willing to bet with their feet and go someplace else as a part of that. So we're seeing that the more diverse teams are actually having lower levels of turnover as well. And so that's, I think, an important piece. What's the more important question is like, why wouldn't somebody want to be measuring this? And I think for that, it's fear. It's scary thing to think that like, what happens if I if my scores come back and I find out that, you know, number one, I'm not nearly as representative as the rest of the industry or number two, you know, the people that identify outside of the majority are having a meaningfully worse experience at our firm. And so I, I think that that's a scary thing sometimes for people to to really want to sign up for. But the ones that are are, are sort of really taking steps that are having a big impact. It is an interesting question, and I'm sure you have some interesting conversations around that, the why not. And it can be it can be scary. Um, Michelle Sims, who is the CEO of UPRO, who you know as well, she was on our podcast and said something similar, you know, women will speak with their feet. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not listening, you're not making change, they will move on. And that retention piece is so critical when you think about the company and bringing people in, it just becomes a revolving door, unfortunately. So you really do need to make that change. When I think of the fear-based element of it, Eric, and I, I do firmly believe that a lot of the challenges men have in kind of finding their voice and making change is that it's rooted in fear. There's so much uh, publicity around lawsuits and things that can happen. I remember I sat on a board once and uh, one of the male executives said, I was advised by our attorney never to have closed door meetings with women. And, you know, of course, we that then led to another conversation, but it was rooted in a fear of a what if. What if I say something wrong? What if I get sued? What if this happens? And I guess from your perspective, when you think about kind of what advice do you have for your male counterparts and men in the workforce in general, as it relates to being an ally and supporting equality? I think the biggest thing, and you said it, it's at least for me, one of the barriers I had to get past was this fear of saying something so poorly, wording something so poorly that to somebody that doesn't know me well, it would lead them to think that I believe something that I absolutely don't, right? And so I think that there are a lot of males in leadership positions that feel like, look, as soon as I open this up, I'm putting a target on myself that is then going to lead the people that I work with to question everything that I say or look at it under a microscope. And I can't speak for everybody on this, but I will say that just has not been my experience I've had a number of actually hard conversations with female coworkers when I've said things that I thought was actually me being supportive and actually was pretty damaging to them. And I'll give you an example. One of them, when Justice Kavanaugh was going through that process and separate of where anybody sits politically, there was obviously the charges around that. And I brought that up somewhat flippantly to 
somebody that I'm pretty close with at our company. And they, I could tell that something didn't set right. And then to her credit, she sent me a note afterwards and was like, Hey, you probably picked up that that was here. This is what you need to know is that anybody that you're talking to, you should just assume that they have been affected. If it's a woman that they've been affected by sexual abuse or sexual inappropriate you know, comments in those areas. And even though you're saying what feels like a strong thing, which is like, they need to listen to this woman's story and take it as part of that. Like the way that you're saying it in sort of as part of a news cycle is not true to how it impacts me, somebody who has lived through sexual abuse. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it just blew me away. Right. Um, and that was a hard conversation, but I learned so much from it. And I'm so grateful to her for sharing that with me. And again, I think that if you genuinely are letting people know that you are on this journey and you're by no means there and that you know we all can kind of help each other along that journey i have found people to be really quite good about helping me to understand when i take missteps as opposed to throwing stones at me when i when i have missteps well it's um again one of those say it moments and just reminding ourselves that we're constantly in a state of learning we have a saying here at Clear Edge, like if you're not learning, you're not growing. So I feel like I'm growing all the time because every day I definitely feel like I'm in a situation where I'm trying to listen more and just learn different perspectives and opinions along the way. So that actually is great advice, I think, for your male counterparts, not to lead in fear, but to lead in learning. And a big part of that is just listening and trying to understand someone else's perspective, which may not be your own experiences, but it's someone else's. And it's it's good to understand what that is. Yeah. And I think you know, these last couple of years have unfortunately given us ample opportunity to be vulnerable in front of our teams. And I will say that I think I'm probably a better leader coming out of that because I've been forced to sort of practice vulnerability because I've just been more obviously vulnerable uh, in times as I've sort of dealt with different things. And I think that it has helped me understand that this perception that there's people just waiting to leap on you at the first sign of weakness is just really not accurate in most of our cases. I think the other thing too that I would say as a piece of advice is that we have to get better as males, and especially as white males, at understanding that by acknowledging the privilege that we have because of our gender and because of our race does not mean that we haven't worked incredibly hard for whatever we have gained in our careers or our lives as a part of that. That's probably the biggest thing that I hear people is like, well, yeah, we talk about that, but I wasn't given anything. Like I didn't have any money. I grew up super poor. I grew up more poor than, you know, and all these different things. And I think that that's that piece of this idea that it's not either or. It's not that you worked hard or you have privilege. Those two things can be true and, and they can be true in different areas, right? You can have privilege in some ways and then actually be discriminated against in others. A fascinating story that someone in a group told me, a dark-skinned female, and she was lost her keys 
and she was trying to, you know, get in through the window. A neighbor called and said somebody was breaking into the house. And so because of the color of her skin, um, you know, she was more likely to have gotten that reaction as opposed to somebody saying like, hey, what's going on or trying to get to the bottom of it a little bit. But when the police showed up, they very quickly were like, oh, yeah, yeah. and they believed her story and stuff like that, which, you know, she tells the story may have been very different if she was a black male. I think that we just have to understand that we all have privilege in some ways and not in others. And it doesn't mean that we haven't uh, worked really hard for what we've gotten. That's a great perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I hear that often as well, just concern with men feeling like they're going to be overlooked for a promotion now or not have these different opportunities. And one of the things I love about um, Delibra is she always focuses on it's not, we're not trying to take something away. We're trying to be additive to the conversation. You know, there's plenty of seats. Who made up all of these C-suite titles? So we can certainly, you know, add more people to the table or do different things. So it's more additive and a we conversation, not a us versus them conversation. So Eric, before we wrap up this conversation, we both have been part of the staffing and recruiting industry for quite some time. And I know starting with the data is a really strong position because then we're rooted in facts and data. What do you think we as an industry can do to really make change, including more representation in the C-suite and boards and quite frankly, diversity as a whole in our industry? I think it starts with a very real commitment to it. And I think that that's for all of us, even those that are further along in that journey than others. I think one of the things that can be a barrier is feeling like if you're not as far along as you think you should be on this journey towards uh, increased equity, increased representation, that you're going to be looked upon badly. And I tell people that, look, I don't necessarily care where you're at in that journey. I care that you're on that journey and that you're making progress. And everybody has to start somewhere. And that's, I think, a really important piece. So I think we have to continue to really focus on that. I do think we need to, all of us who have webinars, who have things that we do from our marketing team, we have to find ways to make this a part of our program. I think it's a mistake when we think of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a role in our company, or we think about it as a committee or you know a, a goal. Everything that we sh- do should be viewed through that lens. And really, if we you take that same focus that that commitment is really around being equitable, being diverse, because not only is that the right thing to do, um, not only is that the legacy that I think many of us want to leave behind is that we've helped to lift up people that and give them a boost in a way that maybe they wouldn't have gotten somewhere else. But it's also the right thing to do for your business. It just builds a better business, so more fun business to work in, a more interesting business. So I think we just have to commit to that. We have to let the data guide us. And we have to realize that it's, you know, it's a journey, not a destination. So there's always going to be work to be done. We make progress and then we refine and then we maybe slip backwards a little. And so we have to go back and gain that again. And I think if we can really commit to that, that that's a core part of what we want out of our business, that we can continue to make, make change. That's a great answer. Thank you. All right, for fun, I have to ask you one final question. I normally do a lightning round, but we're out of time. So for fun, just tell us one thing people may not know about you. The thing that people may not know about me is that I have scuba dived in three different oceans on four different continents. Wow. I did not know that about you. And I feel like I know a lot about you. So thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely a passion. Very good. Well, thank you again, Eric, so much for being here and just sharing your story and being vulnerable to help other men see what they can be as well when it comes to being an ally. So you've given us a lot to think about. If someone wanted to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think you can reach me on email, egreg at clearlyrated.com or on LinkedIn. And, you know, we're happy. We share all this data for free. And that's part of how we're committed as an organization to really continue to be a part of this dialogue and this movement towards equity. Um, So please reach out if we can do anything at all. We're happy to do it. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Clearly Rated, for your continued work. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I want to say, Leslie, is um, thank you, um, because I'll be honest, you've been doing more to help women in leadership in this industry and other industries to help employees of color. And you've been doing this work before the light was shined on this industry in a different way. And so I just want to give kind of a quick shout out on that, um, that a big part of the reason why I'm where I'm at on this journey is the inspiration that I take from you and from your team and sort of the energy that you put to things that are are truly, you know, not business related, but trying to leave this industry a better place than you found it. And I just find that super inspiring. Oh, thank you. And now you're choking me up. <laughs> I didn't know we'd be crying on this podcast. That's right. That's part of that vulnerability, right? I know you're absolutely. Thank you so much. It means the world coming from you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.